You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhesky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 5th, 2021. Later in the program, we have part one of an interview with Judah Shett, an organizer for Decarcerate Monroe County, regarding the expansion of the Monroe County Jail. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB Local News. Today's episode deals with a nursing license scam and flood damage used cars. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, October 6th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzapfel. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management has recently awarded eight organizations their highly valued Governor Award for the Environmental Excellence, which celebrates the achievements of businesses and organizations who have taken significant steps to protect the environment. One of the organizations, the Environmental Resilience Institute at Indiana University Bloomington, was given the award for their program called Local Government Implementation Portfolio, which provides expert assistance to Indiana communities who desire to become more environmentally friendly but do not know how to start. This award was presented during the 24th Annual Pollution Prevention Conference and Trade Show, which was held last month in Indianapolis. Since the beginning of September, Bloomington residents have been reporting issues with their tap water that ranges from it tasting bad to having a foul odor. These complaints are in higher numbers than usual, but Bloomington Utilities has insisted that the water is safe to drink and, with the uptick in reports, the water has been tested multiple times every day. A possible cause of the issue has been linked to algal blooms in Lake Monroe, which can be filtered out but can leave an unpleasant taste in the water. It's important to emphasize that the water is deemed safe and treatment for the water has been adjusted according to the complaints. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has recently teamed up with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to create the Regional Electric Vehicle for the Midwest Memorandum of Understanding, which is an organization that works to improve the electric vehicle infrastructure in the Midwest. This infrastructure will create jobs, reduce carbon emissions, and improve public health. This will allow the Midwest to compete with the innovations on the West and East Coast. That's all for your environmental news brief. However, WFHB needs your help. We are funded by the community and need your support. During our fall fund drive, we ask our listeners to visit our website and donate to help keep us community powered. Visit WFHB.org or call 812-323-1200 to make a donation today. Thank you for your time and support. And for WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel.
On October 4th, at the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting, project funding for professional communications and marketing assistance was approved for the IU Health Bloomington Hospital redevelopment site. Economic and Sustainable Development Director Alex Crowley explained the need for professional help on the project, saying that the scale is too large to do a good job without relying on external assistance and experience. As that project gears up, um, you know, it's going to be a very substantial and complex project, as you might imagine. It's going to take a lot of resources. It is a once in a century project, I think, as the mayor likes to say. So I think we we are all uh, have all been uh, discussing and coming to terms with the fact that we're going to need a fair amount of professional uh, outside help on certain aspects of the project to really make sure that it's as, as successful as possible. So one of those is um, is is a communication strategy, which will have a, a sort of you know variety of different uh, needs. Ultimately, if you think of communications and marketing generally of the site, um, but it will start with with things like. Um, perhaps uh, uh, naming the neighborhood, which, uh, you know, uh, as much as we all like to call it the hospital redevelopment site, that doesn't really roll off the tongue. And Commissioner Nick Kappas questioned why the communications contract was necessary and why the public wasn't being involved in the naming process instead. Why do we feel that it's necessary to have an outside um, party come in. Isn't this something that we could, I mean, we're literally, it's very rare anymore in our city that we have the opportunity for the public to have an opportunity to name a new area. You know, why are, why are we not, why haven't, did we think about possibly running this through a public process? I understand. I mean, I, listen, I lived through the CMP. I lived through the UDO. Like I understand the public process, but this is a little bit different. This is us having the opportunity for public input in creating a new neighborhood. And so has was that considered instead of us going to a naming and branding um, contractor? Crowley responded, saying that the contract would be able to help with the development of the site, which could include getting the public's input. So just to be clear, we have not outsourced the naming to them and we'll just uh, just accept whatever they come up with. This is actually, in fact, going to be a contract to help with that engagement strategy. Uh, we, we recognize not only is Bloomington heavily engaged in everything it does, but in this particular case, given the importance of this project in the grand scheme of things, they're going to help us really gather that, process it. It's really bringing in a firm that can help facilitate that. And I should I should also note that you know one of the things we discussed was the the relative merit of of bringing in someone from the from outside of Bloomington versus uh, you know resources we have inside of Bloomington. And we are uh, going to be asking them and, and requiring them to leverage local resources as part of the pro- as, as part of the process. The commissioners voted to approve the funding unanimously. The next meeting will be held on October eighteenth. Now we turn to former correspondent for the local news. Katrine Bruner, as she recounts her experience as a volunteer in light of our fall fund drive. We now turn to award-winning student journalist, Katrine Bruner. Hi, I'm Katrine Bruner, former correspondent for the WFHB Local News. I first started at WFHB in 2019. I began as an intern for the news department, gaining credit through my high school. 
After graduating, I continued to volunteer for two more years. Throughout my time at the station, I was able to report on environmental issues I was passionate about, but also gain experience in reporting and broadcasting issues I was unfamiliar with before. In 2020, the Society of Professional Journalists awarded me first place in student radio features reporting through WFHB. On my feature, Project Threatens Ecosystems in Hoosier National Forest. Winning an SPJ award allowed me to look back on where I started with WFHB and where I am now. I definitely could not have done any of it without the help of my fellow reporters, directors, and of course all the volunteers at the station. Community radio means family to me. Once you start getting involved and not just volunteering, even listening regularly, you start to feel like you know these people. And it's because they're all doing it for the love of the job. You can feel the passion from the reporters, the DJs, everyone. And I believe that sets us apart from other radio stations. Whenever I try to pick a favorite feature that I've written, it's honestly impossible to do. Everything had its spark, and that's what made it all so wonderful. But I think the experiences I got out of writing news features will always live with me. From interviewing organization directors, environmentalists, and business owners, to going to protests and gallery exhibits. But WFHB needs your financial support in order to bring you the local news 30 minutes a day, four nights a week. You can make a donation today by logging onto wfhb.org and clicking the red donate button. You can also call 812-323-1200 to make a donation over the phone. Thank you for your time and thanks for supporting your local community radio station, WFHB. Up next, we have part one of an interview with Judah Shept, an organizer for Decarcerate Monroe County, regarding the expansion of the Monroe County Jail. This first aired on KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Part two will air on the local news tomorrow. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. It's also available online at wfhb.org and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Judah, will you do the math for us? What if Bloomington created a truly excellent mental health care facility in town, which was available to people regardless of ability to pay, uh, which was non-carceral. You could go there without fear that if you were involved in a drug that was illicit, that was illegal, you would not be funneled into law enforcement, uh, that you wouldn't lose your children if you admitted to a, an addiction issue as a parent. What, what if there were really an excellent mental health facility in town? How many people would be in the jail? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can tell you what I know about jail populations just generally. About 65% of people in a given jail are there pre-trial, almost all of whom are simply too poor to afford bail. 
We know from the report that the county is using to justify building new right now that 75 to 80% of the people in there, if they're not there on a charge related to drug abuse or mental illness, they're there at least in part because those are issues that are of primacy for them. So I don't know, take 20% of the current jail population. I think that's maybe a starting figure. Although I would also suggest that there are plenty of people within that 20%, let's say, for whom jail is also not the right place. So I think the kind of facility you're talking about, which based on my six years in Bloomington, is actually the kind of facility that would honestly express the sort of exceptional community that people in Monroe County imagine it to be, a facility that actually takes care of its own, that is for the public, that does focus on the social good and the social wage. That's the kind of facility that I think services the community far better than a jail current or future. I'm looking at the irony of the numbers, and because you did just give us numbers, you said in the ICS report that they calculate 75 to 80% of the 320 people there have some form of mental illness or substance abuse disorder. So the answer is if 20% of the people remain, that's 64 people. That's under the proposal that the 1978 study projected. <laughs> What's fascinating is that that number is precisely the upper end of the continuum that that consultant in 1977 had suggested. That's exactly right. That's what they suggested we would need. The upper end. And you're yeah. even pointing out that there are people within that number who would not need to be incarcerated if we looked at the question from other perspectives. That's right. I'm, I'm really opposed to, there's this, set of terms that scholars of the carceral state use, which is the non-non-nons, the non-violent, non-sexual, non-serious. Non-violent, non-sexual, non-serious, that these tend to be the, the first sets of offenses that the sort of existing so-called bipartisan consensus in some states around prison reform can agree on should be eligible for sentence reductions and things like that. And I, I get that that is maybe the easiest ground on which to come to some kind of agreement. And I think in the current context, what's standing in for those non-non-nons is that 75 to 80% figure. And I think, it, of course, it makes sense to start there. I am unwilling to throw the other 20% or the not the the non 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 nons under the bus. I think we incarcerate people convicted of violent offenses for far too long in this country, and of course, the very concept of violence itself is really complicated and ensnares lots of people who don't pose any kind of threat to public safety. And of course, ignores all kinds of other violences that exist in the United States. Maybe it's a really good place to start those 75 to 80 percent of people, but I'm also really hesitant to say a jail for everybody else is acceptable. Right. And just on the question of the non-non-nons, it's worth pointing out also that the category of sex offender is an enormous category, which people assume is full of violent rapists or, you know, just the, the worst possible scenario, but in fact includes people who are ensnared for all kinds of reasons, including queerness or mental health issues, public exposure, urination, you know, things that happen to people in the course of of other, you know, untoward circumstances like getting drunk after a party and peeing in a corner on your way home and then having that added to some, having that used as an enhancement for some other charge. 
to make sure you do jail time or to coerce some kind of guilty plea for some other charge. So it's worth bringing skepticism also to the question of sex offenses when considering whether incarceration is obvious for everybody with conviction like that on their record. Absolutely true. So important to name. What else do you see in this proposal on the table right now for a new jail in Monroe County that reminds you of the proposal in 2008? And what else do you see that is new? One element of it that you and I were talking about just before we got on air that I think is both reminiscent and new are the concepts. This is in, I'm not sure which report, I don't have it just up in front of me, but the concept of these intercepts. So built into the proposal, from one of the consultants is the very notion of sort of diversion, right? Right. Of of developing so-called alternatives, which is very reminiscent of elements of the proposal that we encountered in DMC 12 years ago, as people talked lots and lots about the importance of alternatives to incarceration and prosecutorial diversion programs and things like that. I think one element to this, of course, I wouldn't speak out against alternatives to incarceration. Of course, need those kinds of programs. But one element that was always foundational to the Justice Campus and which appears to be foundational within these series of intercepts is the idea that they are inherently connected to the existing or perhaps expanding carceral system. They, in fact, expand it, right? They make it into a sort of more capacious system. The alternatives wind up ensnaring more people. Often accompanying these kinds of alternatives are all kinds of demands or contingencies that could actually lead somebody back into being incarcerated. And so in some ways, it's it brings me back to the conversation about scales of the state and community and what sort of state we want. If you can think about Monroe County, again, as sort of a scale of the state over which your listening audience actually has a fair amount of of um, say or control, right? You you know you can actually create a fair amount of change at the level of your county. And so, to me, it raises the question of: um, it's not that we don't want alternatives to incarceration. Of course, we do. But it also, I think, suggests that we have to sort of really interrogate what an alternative to incarceration is. I yeah. think having all kinds of services available to people long before they might get arrested. And certainly after they get arrested, let me make that very clear, but also completely unrelated to the criminal justice apparatus, to me is an alternative to incarceration. Funding the food banks and expanding them and funding the shelters and expanding them and decreasing the barriers at the shelters and decriminalizing homelessness, decriminalizing substance possession and abuse. Those are all alternatives to incarceration, essentially building up at the scale of the county, the kind of state I think most people in Monroe County would actually like to see, a state that takes care of its own. That itself is an alternative to incarceration. So I think That element of the report is both important in the sense that we need to pay attention to what kinds of, you know, writ more narrowly, what kinds of alternatives to incarceration are being proposed and evaluate those maybe on their own terms. But I think it's also really important to name that an alternative to incarceration does not, and in fact, maybe 
you know, should be really understood first as, you know, much more literally, like something that is outside of the existing carceral system and which in fact can, you know, be, be funded in lieu of funding a jail. Now it's time for Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB Community Radio. Today's episode deals with a nursing's license scam and flood-damaged used cars. We turn to our host and producer, Richard Fish, for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Here's a couple of scams going around right now. The first one is for nurses, and the other is for anyone who might be thinking about buying a car. Now, if you're a nurse, or if you know anyone who is a nurse, this nasty con is a variation on one we've all heard before. If you know a nurse, please tell them about this. Nurses have to be licensed, of course, and the scammers have apparently got the list of licensed nurses from the Indiana Professional Licensing Agency. Nurses around the state have been getting phone calls from someone who claims to be an FBI agent. The caller tells them their nursing license has been suspended because they're suspected of being involved in either drug trafficking or money laundering or both. Callers have actually been able to spoof the caller ID system so that the number that appears is the real number of an FBI office or the licensing agency itself. Sometimes these demands have been coming in a fax, which appears to have the FBI logo or the professional licensing agency's letterhead and looks very official, but it's not. The nurses who are being targeted are innocent, of course, but the fraudsters demand that they put up a bond to have their license reinstated, and the amount they want is several thousand dollars. The tip-off is... They want the money immediately, sent by wire transfer, and that should be a big red flag. Unfortunately, some nurses have fallen for this scam. What they should do is to call the Indiana Professional Licensing Agency using their public phone number and ask about the status of their license before doing anything. The other scam going around is another old one that always comes up when there's storm damage somewhere, and this time it's the recent Hurricane Ida. That caused widespread flooding down south and in other places, and thousands of cars ended up partly or completely underwater. Now, when a car is flood damaged like that, the title is supposed to be branded with the words flood damage or salvage. But all too often, that doesn't happen. Even before Hurricane Ida, there were an estimated half million flood-damaged cars running around on U.S. roads. And now there's a whole new, well, flood of such vehicles coming along. And on top of that, 
there's a shortage of used cars nationwide right now. So if you're thinking of buying a used car, make sure you see the title. Ask to see a vehicle history report and check the car out very thoroughly first. It's a great idea to have a mechanic you know and trust go through it. These flood-damaged cars may look all right, and they're likely to be offered at really amazing prices, but you know the old saying, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Hi, this is local news anchor Benedict Jones here. Up next, we're airing Hereabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio. Ahead of the show, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Andy Pace, co-producer for Hereabouts, about the inner workings of the program in light of our fall fund drive. We turn to Cade Young for more. Andy Pace, co-producer for Hereabouts, thank you for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cade. Um, so, Andy, how did you come to be involved with the IU Asian Culture Center and subsequently hereabouts in collaboration with WFHB? Yeah, so this happened about a year ago when I was just starting my graduate program. Uh, I'm currently a, a second-year master's student here at IU. And uh, a year ago, I had uh, just moved to Bloomington from Seattle, and I was looking to get involved in uh, an organization or department um, that was outside of my studies. And um, the Asian Culture Center stuck out to me because I identify as Korean American. And this was also during uh, the pandemic when everything was online. So um, what I ended up doing was just sending them an email inquiring about volunteer opportunities and had the opportunity to attend like an information session on volunteering. And included in that information session was the Hereabouts radio show. And I personally did not have experience in radio before then, but it was something that I thought sounded really cool and a lot of fun and just something I wanted to give give a shot. And that led to me uh, signing up as a volunteer and um, eventually um, being interviewed for an episode and then uh, co-hosting some episodes. It's just been a wonderful and really exciting experience ever since. Well, that's awesome to hear, Andy. And um, and now that you're you know helping out with the production of the show, would you just walk me through and walk our listeners through the process of how the show is done? Like, how does Hereabouts come together before it goes out onto the radio? Yeah, absolutely. So, I believe previously before uh, 2020, uh, traditionally people would record episodes in person using uh, studio equipment. However, last year, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, we shifted to recording using Zoom. So just like uh, all the Zoom classes that everyone was attending last year, uh, we would just set up a Zoom meeting and really just hit record. And it was actually that simple. So um, I think that's one of the benefits of using that Zoom technology is that, you know, you don't have to schedule a time for everyone to show up in one physical location. Instead, you just uh, 
find a good time when everyone's available and you just hop on Zoom and really just have a conversation and just make sure that you hit that record button. Absolutely. And that's a great way a lot of our public affairs shows are done and it's nice and convenient to get people together and keep them safe, right? So that's a, a great thing you guys are doing. Now, the next question I want to ask you, Andy, this is a nice and easy one, a softball for you, if you will. Um, what is your favorite part about working on Hereabouts? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because I like multiple aspects of it. I like the production aspects of it and I like being able to do editing and kind of turn in a final project. But I'd say my favorite part is literally just uh, the fact that it's just having conversations with people. Um, you know, I think we bring in uh, guests who come from a variety of different uh, backgrounds, whether that is in the Asian or Asian American community or interests or um, positions that they have and just hearing their stories. And um, I think this has just been really fascinating and it's been really exciting just learning about these people's stories and just like how they're all different, but also like how there are these uh, commonalities between people's stories and, and what they, um, what's important to them, what they value and uh, what brings people together. Wow. Well, Andy Pace, co-producer for Hereabouts, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me, Kate. Appreciate it. Now, if you enjoy Hereabouts on WFHB Community Radio, consider donating to support us during our fall fund drive. To make a safe and secure donation, you can visit wfhb.org and make a one-time donation of $120. You can also set up a monthly recurring donation of $10 a month. Lastly, you can also call the station to make a donation at 812-323-1200. Again, that is 812-323-1200. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for listening to WFHB Community Radio.